Uh, for those of you who weren't aware, where, where have you been? Um, for those of you who weren't aware, we're in the middle of a series on Colossians, uh, and it's been going for as long as I can remember, and it'll go for as long as I can foresee in the foreseeable future. Um, it is good beer week, so memory and future predictions aren't my strong suit this week. Um, we, much earlier in the series, uh, at the, in fact, right near the very start, we left our community with the Bible, which uh, made many of us very anxious, and some of us quite excited. And as we read through the book of Colossians together, we got people to record down uh, responses to it, uh, highlighting things that made them excited or crossing out things they disagreed with or writing WTF with things that they didn't understand and, and, then, and then sort of pro, um, proposing questions that they'd like us to discuss as a community that, uh, that perhaps we could gain some insight from each other on. And one of the things that came out from a lot of the responses was this bit where Paul talks about being free from rules and stop um, living by all these rules and doing what these human teachings tell you to do. And then the immediate next section gives a whole bunch of instructions <laughs> um, and tries to tell everybody what to do. Um, there was a fair few uh, strong words used against Paul from within this community about what a hypocrite he was <laughs> and who is he to tell us anything. We've since uh, framed our approach to the text as listening in on a conversation, uh, on someone else's conversation, that we're eavesdropping in on a letter, that this letter wasn't actually written to the North Fitzroy, um, to FNCC. Uh, it was actually written to <laughs> someone who's carefully placed an apostrophe in it in much of our brand branding. <laughs> I think it's quite good. Um, that, that this letter wasn't actually written to us. It was actually written to another community a long time ago, um, and we're eavesdropping in on their conversation. But somehow we believe that we've got something to learn from it and that God um, is speaking through it. So what are we to do with it when we get to instructions? Uh, many of us were kind of raised with a, uh, a view of the Bible as the Bible's instruction manual before leaving earth. So some kind of textbook to teach us um, all these things. So when we hit a book like Colossians, our general um, approach to it is to like kind of read through the greetings and go blah, 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 who cares, don't know any of those people. Um, Paul's praying for them, nice. Um, and then get in, digging into the kind of his discussion of mystical spirits and spiritual circumcision and elemental powers and go, I have no idea what that's about. And then get to instructions and go, aha, finally something I know what to do with uh, before looking at them and going, hmm, <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with this. So the question we've got is, with a book like Colossians, if Paul is kind of writing encouragement and instructions to a group of people who are um, profoundly unlike us, yet somehow like us, um, and that they have a faith in Christ, what do we do with these instructions? And so we decided to outsource a part of the series to a friend of mine. And last night, we had a fireside night, um, which some of you were at, which was really cool, which is a chance to d discuss this in more detail. And this morning, my friend Michael Frost is going to be speaking more about that. So um, this is this is Frosty, um, or Michael, or Michael Frost, or Michael James Frost, depending on how much trouble he's in. And, um, and he's going to come and talk a little bit more about uh, how we handle Paul's do's and don'ts and do-do's. You can come up now. <laughs> no one's ever been clapped in this church before, so. Um, 
congratulations. You can probably sit down. <laughs> You've done your work. I was talking with Shane earlier about how we both spent quite a lot of time in churches where when the speaker came up, the band would play a riff and everybody would clap and stand and it was, and, and it was awesome. It was amazing. Such atmosphere was generated for the receiving of the word. Um, so yeah, I missed that. Just, yeah, thank you. Just imagine a, 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 a sort of a jazzy riff right now. Um, <laughs> so yes, I'm. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm from New Zealand, and um, that's nice. I've lived there all the time, <laughs> and it's great. I, I love Melbourne. All the parts of it I hang out in anyway. Um, there's lots of parts of it I don't go to, but the parts I hang out in uh, are great. I don't know what the other parts are like. Um, but the inner north, it's very nice. Um, I'm going to talk about Colossians then, and Paul, and instructions, and do's and don'ts. And Paul is, Paul is one, of those, one of those guys that I, I, I wonder how I would get along with. Um, he, he seems very, we were talking last night a little bit about how he's just very intense and um, sometimes we don't know what to do with that and sometimes I feel just a bit, I just feel a bit uncomfortable when I read him because he's just, he's so intense. Um, but I also recognize perhaps that, that his intensity allows him to, to do certain things that I probably couldn't. Um, I'm a lot more phlegmatic, I suppose, than, than Paul seems when he writes. And so if I was confronting some of the ideological stuff that he is, some of the um, deeply held hierarchical beliefs that he was, I, I probably wouldn't be quite as good at confronting them. I would be a bit more like, hey, guys, got some thoughts. Feel free to take them. Give them right back if you don't like them. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to maybe make as much traction as, as Paul is able to do just because of his level of intensity. So I have this kind of wavering um, feeling about Paul. I sort of, I like him, but sometimes I don't, I feel like I wouldn't want to hang out with him, but I like reading what he has to say. Um, <laughs> a couple of things I think that make Paul seem difficult. So, so one is that's that level of intensity and that what comes with that is this kind of real... Um, desire that he seems to have that we, we don't live by, and one of the things we see in Colossians, we don't live under the law by human instruction, according to the rules anymore, uh, and then spends a lot of his time telling people what to do, how to behave, how to, how to treat one another, what to think, um, and we've kind of got this ongoing wrestle with how do we, what's he actually doing and what's he thinking, is he just contradicting himself all the time, or does he just not like the rules that other people gave, and he really likes the ones that he's going to give? Um, so that's why he's anti-other people's and pro his own. So we want to talk a little bit about, about that uh, this morning. The second issue then we have is even if we are okay with the fact that he's giving these instructions, what are we supposed to do with them? Um, Paul is a first century Jewish man uh, living a, you know, a long time ago. Um, are these timeless instructions for all people at all times and all cultures? Or 
Are they contextual? To what degree are they contextual? How do we apply them? There are some things that seem very contextual, like his discussions around circumcision or um, whether or not you can eat food sacrificed to idols. Yes. Contextual. And circumcision. Okay. So you get a very sharp um, <laughs> implement, maybe a... <laughs> so if we think about um, the idea of Paul's ideas being contextual, what we're saying is what context is he in? What, what, what are the beliefs, values, ideas, practices of the particular cultural context Paul finds himself in? And to what degree are his ideas framed within that and so therefore applicable to that and then to what degree are they, do they still mean something to a group of people uh, who can pretty much Google anything they like, um, who live in a, in a world so far removed from the kind of context that Paul finds himself in? So how do we translate that? He talks about all sorts of things that, that we aren't struggling with, that aren't big issues for us, and then some other things that we do still recognize whether it's about marriage or, or about how we behave towards one another, but he talks about them in ways that seem a bit removed still from our context. So, so we want to negotiate that process a little bit this morning. Is that all right? Yeah? Good. Um, one of the things that, that has changed for me in the way I read the Scripture, and especially the New Testament, is I grew up with the idea that a lot of it was about um, how, to, how to get saved, or the important bits were anyway, and how to, how to get in to the club of people that are in, which is us. <coughs> um, yes, not them out there, but us in here. Uh, and that's what a lot of it was about, and, and then sort of just maintaining that as much as possible. Uh, and, and one of the things you realize is, hopefully, is just as you start to read Paul, is that he is intimately concerned with how we treat one another, with how we behave, with how we, how we live out our life on a regular basis. Um, and he's wrestling with those ideas all of the time. Uh, and so he is convinced that Christ should, should change the way we see reality and the way we live in the reality in which we're in. And so a whole lot of what he's doing is trying to figure that out, trying to apply that, trying to illustrate that. And so we're going to dive inside his process a little bit this morning. A lot of what he's dealing with essentially is, is what we call ethics, and we talked quite a bit about this last night. But ethics is simply a way of talking about um, how we are to live, how we are to treat people, how we are to behave, uh, what values we are to embody or to hold as, as people. Uh, and that's a lot of the kind of thing that, that Paul is wrestling with. And we're doing this kind of stuff all the time without thinking most of the time. Uh, we're just constantly making decisions about uh, what it is we think we're to do and how we're to do it. Uh, what it is we are, how, what, how the values we hold shape uh, how we act in the world. Um, but sitting behind all of those judgments that we make are a set of beliefs, values, assumptions, ideals that shape the way we make those decisions all the time. Uh, and my suggestion to you guys as you're reading through Colossians, or at least um, 
sometimes paying attention to the fact that some people are reading through Colossians, which is <laughs> probably what a lot of us would do in this kind of scenario, um, is to try and get inside that process. So if we, we chat, we're going to try PowerPoint. Yes, there it is, up there. So what we're going to try and do this morning is get inside the process that Paul goes through when he, because there's all of these instructions that he gives, as, as Shane was mentioning, and it's like, well, what's he doing here? If he's just said, we don't live by human instructions, and then he gives a bunch of instructions, uh, what do we do with that? What is he trying to do? And how do we get inside the process? And, I, and I'd argue that often that's something we don't do when we, when we read it. We just read it and go, oh, okay. So he's telling them what to do. Um, but what we want to ask is, why does he tell them to do those things and not to do those other things? What's the process for him? Uh, so ultimately, um, theologically, we might say, and I'm a, I'm sort of, I, I carry that dubious label of at least attempting to be a, a theologian in my life. Um, when we talk about ethics from a theological perspective, um, essentially what we're asking about is what does it mean to be a human being? Uh, what do we believe that tells us about how we are to live? How do we make judgments about rightness and wrongness? And there's this word that, that the Christian community has used uh, because it's in the scriptures of this word called sin as well, which I think many of us don't really know what to do with that label anymore either. So I want to talk about some of those ideas because I think they frame the discussion and help us understand what it is that Paul's trying to do. If we think about the idea of what does it mean to be a human being, this is a question that um, probably we don't consciously wrestle with all of the time. We're not just walking around and what does it mean to be a human being? Um, we might ask, why am I here? Or what am I doing with my life? Or you know, questions of that nature. But we often don't wrestle deeply with the idea of what it actually means to be a human person. Um, but I think it's a good question to ask, and I think it shapes a lot of how we actually go about living our lives, whether we sort of recognize that or not. Uh, theologically, one of the ways in which this has been talked about um, is... Oh, let's point it at the thing, eh? That's what he said. Oh, did you do that? Oh, I don't know if I did that or he did. Anyways, it's there. Um, one of the things that uh, theologically we, we, we draw out of the Scriptures, both from a Jewish way of understanding humanness and also into the, the kind of the Christian story, is this idea that um, we are created, if you like, um, we are intended for uh, this beingness of love, with God, with self, with others, and with creation. And that's, um, that's a thread that runs through the Scriptures, albeit expressed and explored in lots of different ways, but it's an idea that runs right, right through the Scriptures. In other words, what does it mean for, for me as a human being to be human? It means to somehow, at its very heart, to, to find harmony in life. And that's what the, the Jewish people would capture in this word shalom, which we often translate as peace, but peace is a very shallow translation of the word. It's, it's really about God. It's a, it's a term trying to capture God's intention or God's desire for what the, the harmonious life of being a human is about, which is about love of God, love of others, love of self, uh, and love of creation. 
So, central to our humanness, and I'm going to suggest also to our ethic. Uh, Because when we talk about, then, the idea of sin, which has come to be it, yep, there it is, oh, that was stressful. Uh, If we talk about sin, which is a word that has been used really badly, I think, uh, in in the church tradition at times, Uh, theologically, what sometimes it's been understood as, sin is doing one of the things on the list of things you're not supposed to do. So there's a big list, and you shouldn't do those things. And if you do those things, you're a sinner. And the narrative of the church has typically been, and everybody's done some things on the list, so you're all sinners, right? Um, There used to be a little, I don't know if there still is, people roam around the city in Auckland with a little black book, uh, and it would try and demonstrate, and there's a series of questions you'd ask out of the little black book that, um, to try and demonstrate how many things on the list you have done. Um, so, and by the end of it, the script would go, and so you agree with me that you're a lying, thievering, murderous, adultering, angry person. Yes, you deserve to go to hell, don't you? Yes, you do. You know what? There's a way out of that. Um, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the, the way in which many people have thought about the idea of sin. There's a big list of things you don't do, If you do them, you're a sinner. If you don't do them, you're okay. But we all do them, so we're all sinners. Uh, But that's quite an unhelpful way of thinking about sin because it becomes a bit silly. How do you decide what things are on the list? And and so then, well, God tells us. God tells us what is is on the list and what isn't on the list. Um, But there doesn't have to be any reason why something's on the list except that God and all His glorious knowledge knows that there are things on the list. It's a bit of a test. Can you avoid doing the things on the list or not, and attest that you're all destined to fail. Um, It's a bit of an unfair system. I want to suggest that uh, perhaps a a more theologically helpful way to think about what sin is, is to think about it in terms of dehumanization. That if to be a human being as God desires is to have a love of God, love of self, love of others, and love of creation. Sin is the label or the the kind of metaphor, the image that we give to those things that get in the way of that, that damage that. Those things that, those values that we hold, those ideas that we express, those behaviors that we do, anything that goes about dehumanizing both us and others. So, Murder becomes problematic because it's de- it's quite an obvious one, I suppose, to us. But I thought I should emphasize it just in case any of you were contemplating. Um, it's a word I have for this church. Some of you in this room are wanting to murder. I hope you're not, but if you are, sorry. Um, I hope you feel better after. Um, now, murder might seem like a really obvious one to us, but, but at different times in human history, it's been much less obvious than it seems to us now. And in fact, in certain contexts, we still find ways to say it's all right, but let's not get into that. Um, but the idea of murder, obviously, it, there's a real damaging of our relationship with others at that point. Um, and it's dehumanizing. Obviously, it's very dehumanizing to the recipient of it, Uh, and it's dehumanizing to us. 
we, we participate in actions which damage our own humanity because we engage in actions that ultimately are damaging <laughs> both our, our sense of self, our relationship with, with God and with others and, and creation. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, in this sense, then, sin, which I almost feel uncomfortable using that word because it's been so damaged, but it's the word we've got, so I'll keep using it, um, is a relational idea rather than a static idea. It's, it's not the idea of the things we do when we do things on the list that we shouldn't do, but it's a relational idea that says it's those, those things that we participate in that dehumanize us by uh, interfering or damaging or breaking our relationship with God, self, others, and creation. Um, and that, I think, deeply shapes the way in which Paul sees the world, the way in which he thinks about our ethics and our behavior and how we are to live. Um, for Paul, though, it's, it's still not quite enough. So if we were to just take that framework we're like, great, okay, so the way I should live is live in such a way that I foster love of God, self, others, and creation, and try to avoid things that break that down. Well, that's, that's a helpful framework, uh, but for Paul it's not enough, because who defines what it means to love? Who defines what it looks like to love oneself, uh, to love others? How do we make sense of that. Uh, if, if we were to, let's say we, we took Plato's view of the world. Now, Plato is a Greek philosopher uh, a couple of hundred years before Jesus. And, and Plato, Plato's view of the world was that anything physical is bad and corrupt. Uh, and what's pure are those things that are non-physical, like ideas. Plato loved ideas. Um, fortunately, he was a philosopher, so that meant he was the best person in the world because he dealt with ideas. Um, so for Plato, if you, you know, if you take this uh, the chair here, uh, for Plato, the idea of the chair is beautiful and pure because it's untainted. It's it's the idea, but the actual chair, well, that's corrupted by actually being physically. It's all tainted by its thingness and its physicality. It's kind of gross um, and can't be as pure as the idea of the chair. So this is Plato's worldview. And, and much of uh, Greek philosophy and Greek, the Greco-Roman world, which is the world in which Paul is operating, is framed in, in Plato's view of the world. So if you have Plato's view of the world, then to love oneself is actually to try and eliminate those things that are tainted by your your kind of gross humanness, uh, and eliminate those things. And so there's, there's you know, Greek philosophers write, there's letters they write to their, their wives who, when they're off traveling and philosophizing and talking about important things. Uh, there's one where he writes a letter to his wife who has just, I think, um, lost her child. Either she's miscarried or, she's, or, or the child has, has passed away in infancy and he's reprimanding her for her show of emotion because emotion was icky and 
gross because it was all physical and earthly um, and it wasn't nice and pure like Plato's wonderful ideas. So if you have that view of the world, then that shapes what it means to love oneself or to love others. Uh, And so we have to go further than just this and we have to ask, well, how does Paul understand what what shapes his view of this framework? Um, So for Paul, it becomes Christ. It becomes the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that shapes his understanding of what it means to love God, love self, love love others, love creation. Um, So you'll see in all of Paul's letters um, that there's all of this theology that happens around his understanding of Christ, what he believes about Jesus, uh, who he believes Jesus to be, what he believes Jesus to have done, uh, what that means for us, and then often goes on to give some advice on how they are to live. Um, but if we don't pay attention to the theological wrestle and just jump straight to the how we are to live, then we sometimes miss the process he's going through to get there. And so essentially I think what he's doing is saying how do we move towards the kind of life that's shaped by an ethic of love, love of God, love of self, love of others, love for creation, with that, our understanding of that love being shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's quite a, a long sentence, um, but I think that's kind of what he's, what he's getting at and what he's trying to do. In some of his different letters, there's, there's different metaphors for that process. Uh, so in some, he talks about uh, living by the Spirit and not by the flesh, example, which sounds a bit weird and sounds almost like Plato, but it's not. He's actually doing quite a different thing from, from Plato there, but it's, it's the image he's using to describe what does this life look like to live in light of Christ and how he shapes our understanding of the world. Um, in some, it's circumcision of the heart, for example, which is to us probably quite a weird image, um, which Josh can explain to you later. Uh, so, in, in different letters, there's these, these different images, these different ideas that he's using to try and describe how he thinks the Jesus story reshapes the way we are to live in the world. Um, in Philippians, oh, hang on, I missed a slide too, eh? Oh, yeah, life, death, resurrection of Christ, that one. I talked about that. In Philippians, he, he, he talks about this. He says, uh, in your relationships... Uh, with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So in Philippians, what he's trying to do is say, okay, here's, I'm, I'm trying to talk about how we treat one another, and in order to do that, I'm going to say, let's talk about Jesus. And so we've got some issues of status and hierarchy and power dynamic and hierarchy that's going on in this community So what I'm going to do is, let's talk about Jesus and how he lives and how that ethic of love is embodied in Jesus. And in this particular part, the way in which Jesus gives over his, gives up the rights to his power and his advantage and serves others. And then let's use that as a way to shape how we 
treat one another in our particular situation and in our particular context. Um, in yeah, there it is. Yes, in Colossians two and three, for example, one of the, the images he uses over and over is this idea of we die with Christ and are raised with Christ, and that's his language for um, we no longer live one way, but now we are seeking in, in rising with Christ to live out of that Jesus story and have that reshape the way we act and live in the world. Um, and it's, in fact, it's not only Paul doing this. Oh, yep, got it. Um, so even in, in 1 John, you see the same kind of thing. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So you can see there very clearly the New Testament thinkers are saying, okay, so if to be human is, is love of God, love of self, love of, uh, love of others, and love of creation, it's Jesus who shows us what love looks like. So Jesus shapes our view of love. And so Paul does it, John does it, others do it, um, reshaping the way in which we are to see the world. So, uh, if we go back to a passage from Colossians then, here's, here's a nice passage. So this is, hmm? no. uh, this is just after Paul has said, don't live by human instructions, right? Um, so now he gets stuck in and gives some human instructions. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Which is kind of a really beautiful passage of Scripture, although still seems a bit funny, given that he's just said, we don't live by human instructions. Um, so my suggestion, I guess, to you is to, is to pay attention to the way in which Christ is shaping his, his view of how to live. And you see it even embedded just all the way through the text. Um, forgive as the Lord forgave you, for example. There again, he's using Jesus as this model of what it looks like to embody this ethic of love. So when we read Colossians, for example, we don't just look at the theology in the first half and say that's interesting and then go to the instructions and go, how do I do those? And then, oh, I don't like some of them because these ones sound quite good. Um, so we like some of, yeah, okay, yeah, don't, don't be all slanderous. I can deal with that. Don't lie to everyone. Okay, most of the time, some of the time, I'm okay with that. Um, you know, don't have filthy language. I, yep. All right. Um, <laughs> oh, too early. I was just reading off the slide. Yep. 
Um, so, so we sort of read it instinctively, and we go, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, that sounds great. Then we read it in a bit more detail, and we go, mm, yeah, I, yeah most, I, I kind of mostly, yeah, I mostly get that. And then as you keep reading through Colossians, then it sort of starts talking about how husbands and wives are supposed to behave towards one another, and then you're like, oh, okay, less comfortable with that, okay, <laughs> all right. Um, and, and so there's this kind of mixture of things, and so what we tend to do, I think, is, is, well, there's, there's a few options to us. Either we go, this is just ridiculous, and just ignore it. Uh, or we go, okay, there's some things in there I like, so I'll do those. And there are some other things that I'm sort of ambivalent about, so I'll do them when, it's, when it seems good to me to do it. And there's some things in there I don't really agree with, so I won't do that. Uh, that's, some, that's probably how many of us instinctively read it. Even if we, we think we, we really follow the Bible, that's usually what people are doing. Um, just sort of doing the, the bits we, we kind of like. Um, but I guess the challenge to us then is, how do we decide which bits we like? And my suggestion to you would be, pay attention to how Paul arrives at the things that he says, because that will help us get inside that process. Um, okay. So, we get to these instructions like that kind of list, uh, and more. My suggestion to you is to, is to think about it a little bit like this. And this is what I think maybe Paul is, is saying. Based on what I know of the world, this is, I'm paraphrasing Paul here, I'm getting inside his mind, and I'm going to speak for him and make him say something that I want to say. But I think I'm, I think I'm doing that in an okay fashion, So, because um, I'm a professional theologian, I'm allowed to... I think what Paul's essentially doing is saying, based on what I know of the world, my instruction to you is don't do that. Because that's dehumanizing. It's not in tune with the ethic of love that's shaped by Jesus. And you should do that because that's an expression of true humanness. And it's in tune with the ethic of love is shaped by our understanding of the person of Jesus. So that means one of the questions we should ask is, the, rather than me painfully using that, um, question we should ask ourselves when we then come to read some of Paul's instructions. So why did Paul believe that his instruction on this issue was confronting dehumanization and embracing God's vision of humanness? To me, that becomes a much better question than um, how do I do what Paul says? Because I think if we can get inside the process, then we see what it is that Paul's trying to do. And one of the things that allows us to do is an entirely different context that we live in from Paul. Go through a similar process to him and come to some conclusions for how we are to live, for how we are to behave for how we are to treat one another, how we are to live our lives faithfully in light of who Jesus is. So in the context of the passage we were just looking at, we might say, okay, maybe it seems obvious, but maybe it's not necessarily. Why does Paul say that we must rid ourselves, or why does he say that the Colossians should rid themselves of anger, of rage, of malice, 
of slander. Or do you say slander here? You probably do, eh? It's probably an Australian thing. It's like dancing. It's, it's not a big issue. We don't need to wrestle with it. Um, so it might seem obvious to us. We might say, oh, well, I know why he's anti-rage. Yeah, because rage is bad. But why? What is it about rage that is bad? What is it about lying that is dehumanizing? And I think that's a really good question to ask because it, it, it makes us go a little deeper on, on the issue rather than going, okay, I know lying's bad, and then we find ourselves in a situation where lying seems like the right thing to do. So then we think, but it's on the naughty list of things we shouldn't do. So what do I do? And then we're in a bit of a problem because then we just end up having to lie and then thinking afterwards, I'm a sinner, but it seemed like the right thing to do. It's, it's not a very helpful framework. Whereas if we actually say, why is it, what is it about lying and Paul's ideas that, that's actually dehumanizing? How does it damage love of God, self, others, and creation? Then it allows us to make sense of it in our context. Lying might seem like a really obvious one, but it's not all the time. I grew up um, in a Christian home, and my mother was a very passionate Christian woman. She, she still is. Uh, she read lots of Christian books, and one that she'd always read and always tell me stories about was the story of Corrie ten Boom. Does anyone remember that? Yep, it was, they, those stories went around, didn't they? The, the Corrie ten Boom stories. Uh, if you are, you know, not deeply immersed in um, 1980s Christianity, um, it, you've really missed out. Yes, you have. Um, I missed out on the Smurfs because of it. Gargamel and all his spells, you know, that evil cat, not something we should be filling our minds with, is it? No. Uh, but Corrie Tim, I my mum telling me, you know, vividly this story of how, it's a story set in the Second World War, and um, they were hiding Jews from, from the Nazis. And I think it was the SS or something came to the door and said, are you hiding Jews here? And it was a massive, massive ethical dilemma for Corrie ten Boom because she didn't know what to do. Do I lie and say the Jews aren't here? But if I'm honest, then I have to give up the Jews and they'll all die. Um, so I think in the end, from memory, her sister managed to get around the issue by saying they're under the table or something like that. I, I may be remembering the story wrong. It's a long time ago, so forgive me if I am. I should have looked it up, shouldn't I, before I came. I'm sure I could Google Corrie ten Boom. Um, because they were in some kind of special escape hatch for Jewish people in, in um, Nazi Germany that was kind of got to through some passageway under the table, but when they looked under the table, obviously there was nobody there, and so they said, you're, you're lying to us but they weren't lying because they really were under the table. So they managed to find a third way. <laughs> but I would suggest that if we, if we got inside the process of why it is that Paul sees lying as being dehumanizing, then, he, then we probably have less problem with lying to the SES about whether or not the Jews are hiding in the house because we realize it's not an issue of lying is on the naughty list of things we shouldn't do, and if we do it, then we become terrible sinners. It's actually it's, it's something much deeper than that. And so feel liberated, so that when someone says, 
do I look good in this? You're allowed to lie. What it also allows us to do is to recognize that Paul is not the same as us. He's a first century Jewish man. He's very progressive in many ways for his time, but he's not very progressive for our time. He seems a bit old and stuffy uh, on some issues. Um, but that's okay. We can't expect Paul to be a 21st century, inner north, Melbourne thinking person, because he's not. He's a first century Jewish man in a culture steeped in slavery and patriarchy and all of these things that just makes no sense to us. But if we can pay attention to the process he's going through, then I think when we read these instructions, it helps us access how the story of Jesus was shaping the way he thought we should live and behave and treat one another. Um, and that helps us to apply the context. If, if Paul was writing a letter to a New Zealand, I'm going to use a New Zealand example, so bear with me. Let's say we had a church in New Zealand made up of uh, some Maori people and some Pākehā. I'm a Pākehā, which is really a New Zealand-specific term um, to define my state, my sort of my relationship with the indigenous people in, in New Zealand as Maori. There are certain cultural ideas within, within Māori thinking that are different, obviously. I'm sure that's no surprise to you. One of them is that you don't sit on tables. So in Māori culture, you don't sit on tables. Uh, that is seen as a culturally offensive practice because you are taking something that is rather profane, uh, i.e. your bottom, and putting it on something that is where you eat, where you eat, for, for instance. Um, other things as well that you might do on the table, I suppose. Um, don't think about it too much. Um, so you shouldn't, you shouldn't sit on the table the same way that you shouldn't um, sit on a pillow. So there are, there are these, these ideas that are really, really cultural offensive. But when I came, I stayed with Shane and Meg this week, and I was uh, sleeping in the lounge, and I saw Shane use my pillow as a cushion under his bottom. <laughs> now, as a Pākehā, I don't find that offensive, right? Well, maybe, no, I don't. Um, it's comfortable. Yeah, that's right. I find it deeply appealing. No, uh, but, but to a Māori person, that would be a, a deeply offensive thing to do in their context. So let's imagine we've got a a church of Māori Christians and Pākehā Christians. And the Pākehā Christians are saying, we don't live under the law or any kind of human instruction, and we're quite comfortable sitting on tables. And these Māori people, if they're having this kind of attitude, they'd probably say, these Māoris, which is what you say if you don't know how to say it properly, uh, uh, are getting offended at us sitting on tables, but they just need to get over that because we shouldn't be living by such silly things like that. Um, and Paul writes them a letter, let's, let's imagine Paul writes them a letter, we're now imagining he, he's kind of up to date with Māori Pākehā relations, so bear with the illustration, it's limited, but it'll do. Um, I might suggest that Paul's response to that might be to, to tell the church to stop sitting on tables, because 
out of his ethic of love and the way in which Jesus' life speaks to those who tend to be on the downside of power dynamics for Māori who live in a society which now, even in their own land, is dominated by European Western values that has restructured their whole society so that they feel dislocated from their own cultural identity and all of, all of these things we could say about that. That, it, that for church people in that context, it would be a really healthy thing to do to stop offending people and don't sit on the tables, right? Now, now he writes that letter and, and, and then a few hundred years later, some people in Scandinavia, for example, sitting on very good-looking furniture, are, um, are reading this letter. And Paul says, stop sitting on tables. And, and then they go, well, how do we make, what do we do with that? I guess they have a few options. Um, they could say, right, well, that's clearly a contextual issue, so let's pay no attention to that. Or they could say, everybody, it's a, it's a Christian thing to do not to sit on tables. Christians don't sit on tables. It's one of the things we don't do. We don't sit on tables. It's a Christian thing. You might not know why, it's just, it's on the list, okay? Don't sit on the tables. Which is the way lots of people have treated the Bible, is to read it kind of like that. Unless something after a while seems a bit silly and then we just ignore it instead. That's, that's kind of the way many people read it. Um, but you can imagine all these people running around, no, you can't sit on the table, you can't sit on the table. Uh, and everybody says, why? Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says so. The Bible says don't sit on the tables. I'd suggest that's not a very, not a very helpful way of, of reading that letter. Now, that might seem like an obvious example because it's obvious to us. But a lot of things in Colossians are much less obvious to us. Uh, and so, if we don't get inside, oh, hey, hey, yes, there it is. Is it okay? Oh, it's gotten powerful, hasn't it? Okay, that's great. It seems to be settled. Um, sitting on tables seems a bit silly, seems really obvious to us. Uh, but when we read Colossians, it's, it's a lot of those kinds of issues that are going on. Now, if we just go, well, they're all contextual, so who cares? They're just an issue for that context at that time, so we don't have to pay any attention to it. Well, then the Scriptures stop being meaningful to us in any kind of way. So, instead, we might ask, what is it about Paul's vision of who Jesus is that reshapes his ideas that means he would argue for not sitting on tables in that particular time, in that particular place? How did... How does that express his ethic of love? How is that saying to sit on tables in front of people is a dehumanizing way to live in that particular place and in that particular context? Um, we Sometimes I think there are, there are issues we, that seem much more immediately obvious as being a context thing. So women wearing head coverings. Although it's not immediately obvious to everybody, because there are still plenty of churches in the world who make women wear head coverings when they come to church to cover their provocative hair. Uh, very provocative, isn't it? Have a look around. Yeah, I'm feeling provoked. And, um, <laughs> you know, so we read something like that and we go, well, that's obviously a context issue because 
that must have meant something in its time, although some people don't see it that way. But then we read his instructions to how husbands and wives are to relate, and we go, oh, well, we have husbands and wives. Well, um, so we should just do what he says, um, rather than saying, actually, it's a similar kind of thing. Um, a husband and a wife are labels we use that sound the same, but in the first century meant quite different things in lots of ways than they do now. And if we don't grapple with what those labels meant within that particular culture at that time, and we just try and equate them perfectly with one another, we end up telling people not to sit on tables in a, in a context where that doesn't make any sense. Does that make sense? Hmm. Okay, so my suggestion then is that that's what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to say, to be a human being, to, be, to embrace your humanness as God desires it to be, is to live with love of God, love of self, love of others, and love of creation. And that love is defined and described and illustrated for us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the way he treated those on the margins, the way he related to power structures, the way in which he laid down his life for, um, for others. That shapes what it means to love God, love self, love others, love creation. And so then Paul says, right, so here's what I want you to do. Here's what I don't think you should do. You should do that. You shouldn't do that. So we come back to the question we kind of started with, and which I want to ask you, which is, what's the difference then between what Paul is critiquing when he says you should not live by human instructions and what he's doing when he gives his set of instructions? Uh, based on everything we've kind of said so far, and I think, Yes, oh look, that's what it says, given what we've discussed so far. It's almost like I wrote my own PowerPoint. Um, given what we've discussed so far, what do you think? That's, that's you. Um, what is the difference between living under a set of prescribed laws, which Paul critiques, and then Paul's attempt to give instructions on how to live in the second half of the letter? So um, I thought I'd just open that up for people's thoughts. Do? Is that something we do here? Thanks. Um, awesome, awesome talk so far. Thank you. <laughs> so far. Um, I was thinking that um, if you take that idea that Paul just Paul says, you know, don't ignore all the instructions just treat one another with humanity, um, then my immediate reaction is one of absolute panic because I am a person that needs structure and needs lists and reasons and, and something to grasp onto because the idea of just walking around just trying to be human is incredibly terrifying. So, so I think what Paul's doing is saying, but don't worry, it's okay, you don't have to just be this amorphous um, sort of mass of like maybe behavior that's maybe okay and maybe not. And, and he's trying to give them little things to latch onto that are specific and unique to them and to their culture so that he doesn't just have this absolutely panicked group of 
<laughs> of congregation members going, we've got to be human, everybody, just be human. I don't know what that means, but be human, like, like that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. I think, um, yeah, w- you, you do see this very kind of, for him, it's not just this idealistic world of ideas where we just, we sit around and we just think about how good it is to be human with one another. Um, which, you know, probably starts to sound a bit creepy after a while. Um, but he, he says this should have actual concrete action that this makes sense in, and here's a way that that works. Here, you know, here. And you're right, I think there, it's still difficult. I think it's still more difficult than having a set of instructions um, because instructions are good. You can just get on with doing them. And it makes things kind of clear. Uh, cloning. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. See, so yes, the list, list covers a, a certain section of ideas, uh, and then everything else we panic about, uh, basically. Or we don't know what to do with, um, or we find an obscure verse that sounds like it might be talking about that, and say that's what that was about. God foresaw. Um, yeah, that's, that's great thoughts. Yes. Um, I kind of think of it as descriptors, more like painting pictures of what shalom looks like um, in that particular context. So, um, which is like having an artwork and, and trying to understand and, and be inspired by and it does give shape to what this kind of higher level sort of thinking is about what it means to be human, but it does um, give us something to work with but doesn't box us in either. Very active area just here, isn't it? It's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it's about Paul saying, don't not critique kind of how you arrived at these mindsets. So it's around in the first half where he's critiquing prescribed laws. It's about making making visible the invisible. How did you actually arrive at these things that you just take for granted? So your worldview, it's about critiquing your worldview. How did you actually arrive here? Um, and And... and not taking that for granted. Um, and out of that, then I guess you can say, well, given that, uh, I mean, I don't have a problem with him having instructions, but the first part I think is important about um, really examining the things that would otherwise be invisible. Yeah, great. Any other? Oh, yes, that way. This way. I look at the, um, you know, sort of trying to deconstruct the laws and go, well, um, because the laws are completely static and take no account for anything except the person that wrote them and the time that they wrote them in and the community that they wrote them around. And even when you look at how even the Old Testament God um, treated his people that wasn't like that because first you'd have the Ten Commandments and then however many years later you'd have the full Levitical law and then you'd have... You know, then Jesus comes along and contradicts it again. And so even looking at how God deals with 
law or instruction is always changing depending on the culture that it, that it's being instructed to. And so Paul's going, you can't just write a set of laws and have them be okay for the next million and twenty years. It just it doesn't work, and you, you can't live like that. And all of a sudden, you'll find yourself trying to frantically keep up with something that has no point anymore. Um, and so if the whole point is just to, all the way through, every time God gives different instructions and Jesus comes along and contradicts what God supposedly, you know, seemingly said in the in the Ten Commandments, then he's doing it because the culture is now different and, and it looks different to be human and to be something else. And so, and um, then like Kat said, it's, it's not, not, not very helpful to, to then just come along and say, well, that law is written to someone who we are not, so you just need to be human without going into a bit of what does that look like for you now and so in a way Paul is almost continuing the tradition of, of what God has done and, and Jesus has done with saying you're looking at this as a static set in stone rule and it was never meant to be look at the heart behind it look at why Jesus said you know if you have anger in your heart then you're a murderer and look at why you know all these other things sort of came to be and yeah, giving just giving examples around that rather than trying to set in stone another set of laws. Yeah, and I think that puts a lot of onus on the community to actually have that conversation then. Because if if we have this amorphous, we just need to be human thing, <laughs> just need to be fully human, uh, fully alive, then uh, and then we just carry that as a, some kind of personal spirituality. It does leave us in a very kind of difficult space, a kind of a floaty space that isn't defined by anything in particular. But the kind of conversation around what does this look like? How does the story of Jesus shape the way we make sense of that in our context and our time? Well, that's a discussion that we have to have with one another. We can't just sit down in our room, close the doors and windows and go, right, I've got to come up with what all of that means for me. Um, but that our ongoing conversation with the church tradition, with the scriptures and with one another is how do we make sense of this now in our time, in our space? How do we explore that uh, for us and not just have this set of yeah, universal, timeless truths, which is the way many people try, try to make sense of the scripture. And then they reject the scripture often on that basis. So it's either here's these universal timeless truths and I've got to try and live by them or that's really ridiculous, I'm just going to do whatever I like and whatever feels kind of good. And I think the, the more difficult but the more rewarding thing is let's wrestle together with what it means to make sense of that in our time and our context on an ongoing basis that will always be changing, always be dynamic, uh, always be uh, moving and, shape and, and being shaped by our community, being shaped by the issues that we're wrestling with, with the, the very real questions that we're struggling with day in, day out, that are going to be very different often, um, but shaped by the same ideas of, of love. Thank you. Can we just give our thanks to Michael? We appreciate that. That's very, yeah. Um, I was, yeah, just thinking the other, like that whole idea of conversion that we come, I don't know, coming to church on a Sunday is our ongoing act of conversion where our minds and our discovery of an ethic of love continues every Sunday or throughout our week. But it's 
lovely to come and have ideas that continue to convert us and to to convert us into love and this ethic of love. Um, also, this idea of shalom is is lovely. Of just this that circle that you drew of of God, of ourselves, of creation, and um, of others. And communion is a time where that that image comes to us in the flesh, that we, we have it before us. We don't have many rites or sacraments in our faith tradition currently, um, but this is one that, that we've, we keep and um, I think is lovely. It, it puts it something tangible on our plate in front of us that represents God, who God is. It represents creation. We have bread and, and wine to represent, you know, this is a very tactile part of who God is. It's not just up in the air, but it's very real and based in the world, this troubled world around us. Um, we have ourselves because we come as a body, as a mind, and we have others. We come in communion, in community, um, and people around you. And so I think this is a beautiful sign and right and moment where we can celebrate this ethic of love and keep pursuing conversion into shalom and all these terms. Today, um, I'm going to get you to do something a little might feel a bit uncomfortable for you. Um, I work in um, a dance group for Parkinson's and one thing that we do often at the end of our time together is we stand in a circle, hold hands and we say pass the pulse and it's gripping one person's hand and looking into their eyes and just looking at them and just that quiet acknowledgement of I see you, I see you. And they then pass the pulse to the next person around the group and it's a time of just, I've, I've seen you. I see who you are and we are here together. Um, so I'm not going to get you to hold hands because that might I might never be asked to do communion again. But um, what I will get you to do today is you break the bread and, and just pass the wine. So we won't take it straight away, but I'll get you to break it and pass it around. And I would like you to, to look in the eyes of the person next to you. Um, doesn't have to be to the length of creepy. There's a line, I'm sure, but um, but there's a certain amount of time where what that does is it says, "I see you. I see that you're a human. I see that you have hopes and dreams and despair and discouragement." And it's very. This is part of our conversion. When we start to see people, we're kind of messed up because we've seen them. They can't ever be just another body in a room again. They're a real human life before us. So, um, and I think that's what God loves us to do, is to, to see the people beside us. So let's just take a moment to break the bread, um, distribute the, the grape juice, and, and please look at each person um, in the eye um, to acknowledge that you've seen them. <laughs> 